0: This podcast is brought to you by Athene. As the world changes, so does perspective. Is the sun setting on a bull market or is dawn breaking on opportunity? As a leading provider of fixed annuities, Athene was built for times like these. Working together, the future couldn't be brighter. Athene, driven to do more. I'm Steve Forbes, and this is What's Ahead. Today, I sit down with Sean Masaki Flynn, behavioral economist and author of The Cure That Works, how to have the world's best healthcare at a quarter of the price. We discuss the current state of healthcare in this country, and he explains why we should look to Singapore as an example of how we should move forward. But first, what's ahead in politics? There's bad news on the drug innovation front. President Trump is going through with an executive order that'll force drug companies to lower prices for certain drugs to what foreign buyers, who are almost always government agencies, pay for them. Sounds good, but those prices are often far lower than in the U.S. because these purchasers don't pay their share of costs of research and development. The total expense of bringing a new medicine to market in the U.S. exceeds $2 billion. The White House theorizes that their proposed price control edict will have drug companies charging their foreign customers more and their American customers less. In reality, countries will forego a new drug if they don't like the price, which they sometimes do now at the expense of the well-being of their own people. With foreign sales curtailed, American medical innovation will be hurt to the detriment of all of us. Starting back in the 1970s, price controls in Europe decimated drug innovation there. We should not let that happen here. Congress is deadlocked on a new COVID relief package. To get action, the president should propose a simple bill, give individuals a new check. Early this year, everyone on a certain income level got a check for $1,200. Make this round's payout $2,000 per person, below the income threshold of, say, $100,000 a year. It's a one-shot and therefore does not impact the labor market. It's enough to help people cover some of those unpaid bills and raise morale to keep the recovery going. A lot of Democrats would find it hard to say no to this bill and force Nancy Pelosi to bring it to a vote where it would pass the House of Representatives and then the Senate. And now, my conversation with Sean Flynn. Hello, I'm Steve Forbes and my special guest today is Sean Masaki Flynn to talk here today about a miracle, a situation that sounds too good to be true, but is actually a vibrant reality. It's about a country that has the best health care in the system in the world, or near the best, where everyone, rich and poor, get the same service that has coverage that is a fraction of the cost of the U.S., 75% less proportionately than the U.S. And the country is Singapore, and Sean has written a blockbuster book about it called The Cure That Works, How to Have the World's Best Healthcare at a Quarter of the Price. And what is remarkable here is that Singapore employs free market principles, ideas that emanated in the United States. So while we talked about it, Singapore did it. Make no mistake, the U.S. healthcare system today is not a free market system, as some seem to think. Now, a little bit of background on Sean. He's an economist. He teaches at Scripps College as an associate professor. He wrote a best-selling book all around the world called Economics for Dummies. We're going to make sure we send some copies to Washington. Perhaps Sean has done that already. He's also co-author of a highly regarded textbook, Microeconomics, now in its 21st edition. He's even tried his hand at politics running, I think, uh, Sean, twice for Congress in the deep blue state of California as a Republican. I feel your pain on the fact (laughs) that uh, you're not in the halls of Congress and I'm not in my presidential library. But uh, (laughs) it's great to have you here today, Sean. Thank you for joining us. Well, I voted for you, just so you know, way back when. Well, given some of the electoral practices we hear about California, perhaps you could have done it more than once. Maybe you should have. (laughs) Oh, this is true. Well, thank you for the warm
1: introduction. And let me just say, the only reason I ran for Congress was there's so much... um, lobbying and influence peddling going on that I figured the only way for me to make a difference and actually implement these things that work in Singapore and the United States would be to actually get on the correct committee and appropriations and actually write it myself. And unfortunately, obviously, I was running in the wrong state to pull that off.
0: Well, uh, someday it may uh, still happen. Ronald Reagan tried a third time before he got to his ultimate goal. But uh, tell us, Sean, you're an economist. How did you get interested in healthcare in general and Singapore in particular? Well, healthcare in general, I grew up around it. So
1: my dad was substantially older than my mom, and he put her through college and then med school. So my mom didn't start med school till I was nearly five years old. And so then I saw her go through med school and residency and internship. She had a Navy scholarship, so she was a lieutenant commander in the Navy. And then she went private sector. So Growing up, I got to see sort of all aspects from sort of behind the scenes through my mom. And the profession and the career just kept getting worse and worse with more government interference and red tape. And she finally gave up after they did the mandates for um, the electronic medical records, which turned out to just be a a giant farce um, because they wasted so much time. They actually had to hire someone to stand by my mom to fill out the dropout forms on the laptop while she talked to the patient. So I saw that happening. But then Singapore specifically, I was reading an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, 2009. It was while the country was debating Obamacare. And um, there was a guy in there, and you know, my own politics and my heart is sort of center right. You know, markets don't always get things right, but you know, it's, it's our best bet usually. But this guy sounded like he was sort of a free market extremist. And he kept saying, we should go look at Singapore, best healthcare system, lowest cost. And I disbelieved him, Steve. So I actually went online right then, looking up statistics at uh, the World Health Organization, who before COVID was more credible. And um, it turns out that Singapore is by far the lowest cost and highest outcomes country in the world. It's not even close. Like they're not just spending 75% less than us, they're spending half as much as England and Canada and the the
0: socialist single payer countries. Well, that's an important uh, point. The spend does not determine good outcomes.
1: Well, so, you know, this. This you can see this in defense contracting and other places. There are places where the government puts a lot of policy interference in and asks people to do things or spends a lot of money. And like the California bullet train right now, there are billions of dollars in and they've only built like five miles of track and it'll never get completed. We've managed to do the same thing to healthcare. care. In the last 50 years, the real interference started with Medicare and Medicaid in 1965. And I'm not saying we should get rid of those, but I'm saying that the people don't know it. But the government sets prices centrally, allocates resources centrally, and then it doesn't allow for any competition in the system. Like it's still the Trump administration is having trouble convincing the courts that it would be a good idea to have um, providers post prices, right? And this is amazing that you know, if you have health insurance like I do through my employer, you know, Scripps College, I can't find out from a doctor ahead of time what anything is gonna cost. And from my mom's experience, I know that she had no idea what anything in her office cost. The equipment she was using to do surgeries, the rubber gloves, nothing. So even if a patient had asked her, she wouldn't have been able to say anything. And so, you know, without price tags and competition, you don't get efficiency and all the benefits from capitalism. And so that that's, to my mind, that's what's going on here.
0: In terms of uh, just a little bit on the single-payer systems, the way they get lower costs is through rationing. In this country, it's sort of uh, open. If you want it, you get it, usually. But in countries like France or Britain or other countries around the world, Uh, there are times you just don't get it, which is why their costs proportionally look less costly, but they haven't found the magic uh, formula either that Singapore has found.
1: Well, yeah, because they're missing, um, you know, they can do cost cutting by just giving fewer services, right, and it's routine that you can read like in the Daily Mail and other British tabloids that women in the United Kingdom end up having their babies out in the hallways of hospitals because there aren't enough OBGYN suites to deliver the babies. They underinvest in capital. They don't give people medications that we would give them. And there's several year long wait lists to actually get a bunch of surgeries done that you could get done here in two, three months. And a, a thing about Singapore that I think the audience should know here if they don't know anything already is that Singapore actually has really short wait times. I think the average wait time for surgery in Singapore is like three weeks and um, there's no denial of care. The way they get their cost cuts isn't denying care, it's figuring out how to deliver care efficiently. And that's largely just price tags and competition because doctors will figure it out. We see this in other places here in the United States because there are some places where the government doesn't interfere much. And one of them for instance is um, cosmetic surgery. Prices of like LASIK eye surgery, cosmetic surgery have been falling for decades, even though the costs of all other surgeries where the government interferes have been going up. and so. And that's because these doctors who do LASIK eye surgery, you can see advertisements, right? You you take an in-flight magazine on an airplane, you open it up, there's cosmetic dentistry ads, there's this and that that have to do with beautification, things that are not covered by insurance under our system, right? Because they're elective procedures. And in anything that's elective in the United States, it's low cost right now. So basically, we need to let everything be price tags and competition. And we get the same benefits as with LASIK eye surgery, which was like, per eyeball back in the 90s, and you can now get it sometimes for $500 with a Groupon.
0: Which is extraordinary, both in real terms and absolute terms. You see it in LASIK surgery, and cosmetic surgery, as you've pointed out, has increased, I think, in the last 20, 25 years, almost sevenfold in this country. Huge technological advances, but we haven't seen there the kind of inflation we've seen in the rest of the uh, medical system. So describe a little bit the U.S. system. You alluded to it but it's really third party. The patient is not the customer.
1: Well, that's right. So the the terminology here, if I were the patient, I would be the first party. If you were the doctor, you'd be the second party. And if you were my lawyer or accountant, that's it. There's no third party payer. But when it comes to health insurance, whether it's government health insurance, like the VA or Medicare, or private health insurance, like I happen to have, there's a third party that does the payments to the doctor. And this ends up entailing a massive amount of bureaucracy and it's, um, you know, if you teach introductory economics like I do, you have to explain every semester at the beginning to the freshmen that barter is bad. Barter means people have to run around trying to find someone who wants their good or service. You wanna go to money. And we can't have that in our current system because you, the doctor, Steve, in your case, we're going to make you the second party, gets paid by a third party, this insurance company, rather than by me directly, the patient. If it was you and me only, you would have to figure out a way to deliver your product at a low cost. But instead, since you bill the insurance company, there then begins a three-month odyssey where the first thing the insurance company will do, because you have to send them billing codes for each little thing you did. Oh, and by the way, there's 64,000 billing codes. The system's ridiculous. They will deny the claim, try not to pay. But this is just um, a bit of kabuki dance. They know it's the beginning of a negotiation. So they start at zero, the doctor wants some amount, and they spend about three months arguing to some price in the middle then the doctor gets paid that price whatever they finally negotiated after three months and only then do you get a bill from your insurance company and i'm um, the ones that i get um have a little form and at the bottom there's crazy numbers and then there's you pay this amount right which has to do with your deductibles and co-pays and um that is our system and so you know steve and if you, i hope you don't mind i'm going to go on another minute or two here telling your audience a little anecdote so about Six, seven years ago, I had this little weird growth on my neck and I needed to be removed. So I went in, and it was a single medical doctor. Um, and you know, this was an outpatient procedure. So this wasn't in the hospital, it was in his clinic across the street, his little office. And there were three people working with him. One was a woman about his age, he was probably 50. She was about 50. And she clearly ran the place. I'm sure she paid the taxes and the water bill, and she's the one that scheduled the patients when they called on the telephone. But there were two younger women there in their 20s. And um, after, you know, he'd done his procedure, the uh, doctor was walking me out and I asked him, doctor, what do these two younger employees do, these two younger women? And he said, oh, their full-time job is to deal with the insurance company billing and calling ahead for pre-approvals on prescriptions that I want to write my patients. And so what I realized going home in sort of a state of mild shock was... (laughs) We've created a healthcare system in the United States where for each single provider, because there was only one doctor in that office, no nurses, nurse practitioners, just the one doctor. He needed to be backed up by two full-time employees with salaries, pensions, benefits to deal with the insurance companies. And then Steve, I woke up the next morning and I was doubly horrified because I realized the problem was even worse. If there's two people in his office shoving forms out the door, there's got to be two people on the insurance company and processing them. So now we've created a healthcare system where there are four people pushing paper around, doing that barter negotiation that takes three months, instead of it just being first patient, second patient, I pay my doctor, no bureaucracy and you get rid of all those costs, which is how Singapore's actually cut costs so dramatically. It's one way to look at what's happened there with the competition in the country, is that the doctors know that they're getting paid by their patients directly, they're not billing a third-party insurance company, and therefore not only do they need to provide high quality at low prices, they can get rid of all the employees who were doing bureaucracy stuff, and it, it's- well, that's,
0: a, that's a critical point. Nowhere else in the economy do we have almost mandatory intermediaries between us and the provider. You go to the supermarket, you don't have intermediaries in between you and the supermarket. You mentioned the lawyer, anything else we do. And when you have that, you get this whole system, a lot of unnecessary things being done. And this also leads to hugely rising costs. Walk us through the point, you know, people complain wages aren't going up as much as they should, but healthcare is counted as part of your compensation. But you don't get the cash. Companies now, uh, what does it cost for an average family? $20,000 a year for for an insurance policy? That normally would be part of your wages. And so compensation, cash compensation has stagnated because this third-party intermediary system is soaking up literally hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars a year that normally would have gone for compensation.
1: Well, that's right, Stephen. I think one top-level way of describing this is if the average family policy costs $20,000 a year, and most people don't know the cost because their employer is paying it. If we cut healthcare costs 75%, which is completely doable, and it's not just Singapore. I can point to examples where the good results have happened here. But if you cut from 20,000 75% off, that frees up $15,000. Imagine giving every working family in America a $15,000 a year pay raise every year forever and you know we have all these people right now with modern monetary theory and these people who just want to print money and universal basic income. The only reason we're in the fix we're in right now in my opinion, Steve, that you know, we're even contemplating as a society universal basic income is we've created so much inequality. We've made it so hard for the average person to get by. And on healthcare, it's this crazy system that triples costs when they're not needed to, and then people could be spending that money somewhere else. And then housing. Housing costs so much. I used to live in California. Why? Because of restrictive zoning rules, right? You get rid of those, you build up, you can have environmentally friendly, and everything would be good. But the government has interfered there, and in that case, it's the local government, and really goofed up our system and made life unaffordable for the average American. And so, one of the things I would love is we implement these healthcare policies, cuts healthcare spending 75%, that goes into people's pockets. That brings back the millions of manufacturing jobs, right? They only got outshored because the healthcare costs kept rising so much that the employers couldn't afford it anymore. If you really want to deliver middle class wage growth, the simplest thing you could do in the country right now is um, reform healthcare on these free market principles.
0: Quickly describe how we got this system, how this system evolved.
1: Okay, so a lot of people in the United States now get their health care through Kaiser Permanente, which is this big health maintenance organization. And it started in stages, but in the 1930s, early 1930s, uh, Henry Kaiser got the commission for the Grand Coulee Dam and Hoover Dam. And so he had all these workers out in really remote locations and there were literally no doctors for hundreds of miles. So he hired doctors to take care of his workers. And so he was used to running his own healthcare for employees. But then what really made this go national was World War II. And in World War II, the government had wage and price controls all over the economy. You couldn't literally change the price on anything, a pack of chewing gum in Pittsburgh without central approval from Washington. And uh, they also did this on wages, right, because they didn't want wages spiraling out of control due to high demand for labor and Rosie the Riveter having to come in and replace all the men. And so with wage and price controls in place, what happened was Henry Kaiser was given the commission to make liberty boats, and they ended up building 10,000 of these. They arguably won the war in the Pacific and Europe because we could ship troops and uh, materiel at low cost. And uh, the problem for him, though, was all his shipbuilding facilities. I think there were three of them on the West Coast. I think one was San Diego, one near Portland, Oregon, and one in Oakland, California. And he needed to get workers to move from uh, the industrial Midwest, all these industrial workers, to California. And we now think of California as the largest, most populous state. But in 1940, it had like two or three million people living there. There was a shortage of workers because of the war. And it turned out the only way he could get workers to move from, say, their job at Ford in Detroit to the Oakland plant that he was running was to offer them free health care because that wasn't covered by the government's wage and price controls. And so he figured out a loophole to actually increase people's compensation. By the end of the war, in order to retain their own employees, Ford, General Motors, big industrial companies in the Midwest, they had to match it. They also had to give free healthcare so their employees wouldn't all go to California and work for Kaiser. And so by the end of World War II, basically there was now in place, and it was informal, it wasn't government mandated at the time, a system in which businesses, large businesses especially, were providing health care to their employees. Now, a, a Kaiser developed Kaiser Permanente, which actually has doctors and they provide care directly. But for most companies like Ford and General Motors, they would just go find an insurance company, pay the premium and have the insurance company deal with the healthcare needs of their workers. And so that's how we got it. And then, as you know, and I don't know if you want to get into this, We then locked that system in place in 1952 with a change in the federal tax code that then gave everyone a financial incentive to uh, give insurance to their employees and also for the employees to want the company they're working for to pay for it. uh,
0: In short, the company could deduct the expense and the employee did not have to pay income tax on it. So uh, today, if, uh, if you're an individual, you go out on the market as an individual, unless you're self-employed, you have to use after-tax dollars, while an employer can use pre-tax dollars. So the system was, uh, in effect, uh, distorted from the start. Then we got the rise of Medicare and Medicaid, which got the government as part of this third party system in addition to insurers. Quickly give us, uh, by the way, before we get into particulars, how Singapore does it, The prices of a couple of procedures in Singapore versus the U.S. And it's important to understand, again, the quality is as good or better than the U.S. The doctors are paid as well as doctors in the U.S. when you take after-tax income. Singapore has a very low income tax system. Technology is high-tech. They don't skimp on the technology. Give us uh, the cost of a couple of procedures what you'd be charged for here, and what you'd be charged for in Singapore.
1: Okay, so I I found several dozen or so of these that I could do price comparisons on for the book, and the one that really stood out for me, and this is partly as my father, before he passed away, had a quintuple bypass surgery, was that the average amount that a bypass surgery in the United States costs or bills out for is about $130,000. In Singapore, it's $18,000, And when you think about that, $18,000 is half the cost of a new car in America, right? New car in America, I think, hit $36,000 last year. Most people can buy a new car. Maybe they don't want the fanciest new car, but average people buy average cars. They can pay it off over five years. And so what Singapore has done in terms of financial security for individuals is they've taken what here would be a financial catastrophe. Who has $130,000 lying around. Very few people have that or they'd have to clear out their 401k or something even if they've got some money saved up or sell their house. It's a financial catastrophe for, for most families. But $18,000, that's something that people could pay off two, dollars $300 a month over four or five years, something like that. And so they've transformed what is a catastrophe due to their efficiency into something that's really inexpensive and just another consumer good, which is actually a good thing in this case.
0: So let's uh, walk through the particulars of the Singapore system, where the government plays a large role, but somehow we get free market economics, a lot of competition. So describe the system, starting with what, if you are a person in Singapore, uh, you must make mandatory contributions like we do with the FICA here in this country, but the difference being you control that money. Walk us through that, the, how they make this system work.
1: Yes, so it, it's quite amazing. And uh, the the Singaporeans like to refer to the overall system as the three M's. The, the M's are Metasave, which is what you're referring to just now, which is their savings program for healthcare. There's MetaShield, shield being insurance. And then there's Metafund, which is a giant trust fund that makes sure that the indigent get equally good care to everyone else in Singapore. And so the first pillar is that MetaSave. It's been in place since the early 1980s. And uh, what it does is it requires people to save about 7% of their gross income into health savings accounts. The money is their personal property. If they die earlier or something happens, they can give it to their heirs and assigns. Once they reach retirement age, they can start transferring healthcare savings over into regular retirement savings where they can access it. And so, everyone here knows that that's their own personal money, such that if they need a medical procedure done and it's their money and it's not third party billing like it is here where someone else is paying the cost, they think to themselves, wow, I wanna get this done right, but I wanna get it done at the lowest cost. And then they go out into a healthcare marketplace, Steve, where price tags are mandatory. If you go to a clinic or hospital in Singapore, they will literally have a menu. It looks like a restaurant menu. <laughs> of everything they do and the prices. And they give you bundled prices. Like here, if you get an open heart surgery, you get 800 billing codes. There, they'll just say, here's the bundled price for the whole thing, take it or leave it. And uh, people can do this. You can go online in Singapore and comparison shop. Like if you needed a knee surgery, you could find out what every hospital in the country is charging. And then the government, to make it even easier to be a good consumer, publishes things like mortality, morbidity, and complication rates by providers. So you could, for instance, say, oh, this doctor over here is less expensive, but uh, 1% of his patients die. Whereas this other doctor over here, it costs more, but no one dies. And then if you're like me, you'd probably go to the cheaper doctor thinking, yeah, one in a hundred, that's fine. And so the doctor who has sort of the lower quality and the lower price, he's under competitive pressure to raise his quality. And the doctor with the higher price and the higher quality, he's under competitive pressure to keep his quality up and lower the cost. And so in this way, there's competitive pressure for both price and uh, quality of services.
0: And again, the outcomes there are uh, better than they are here. And uh, buying the insurance itself, do they buy it out of that uh, first M or uh, how does it work? You buy your own insurance. It belongs to you. So if you change jobs, it goes with you. It's your property, not the employer's property.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, Steve, here, because um, due to changes in Obamacare, we've really restricted the use of health savings accounts here in America. And among other things, the money in them cannot be used to pay for premiums. And this is even true for people who are self-employed. Meanwhile, in Singapore... Yes, people pay for their own health insurance premiums out of their own um, health savings account. So they're aware of the price of the insurance, which is great. And then they're also aware that under Singapore's system, and this is sort of the second stage, the MediShield part, the insurance part, there is it's high deductible insurance. So the first $2,000 a year on, of spending are on them. And so this puts sort of, um, uh, you could call it sand in the gears, or you could call it just a little bit of friction, but it makes people pay attention in a way we don't have here.
0: Also, the uh, insurance is age-related. So if you're a 20-year-old, you can get it for a few dollars a year. If you're 80 years old, it's going to be higher. But even so, with the competition where you're writing the check, the insurance premiums are a fraction of what we pay here.
1: Yes. Well, it's startling. So... um... You know, I, I'm so I'm 47 now, the health insurance policy my, my company is paying for is $20,000 a year, Scripps College. In Singapore, I could get this, actually better quality insurance, right, because you don't have to worry about in-network and out-network and all sorts of things. My insurance bill a year would be less than $1,000, which is another reason why these health savings accounts work so well, is that the costs of buying insurance and even the annual deductibles are for most people, unless something really catastrophic goes wrong much less than the amount of money in their health savings account. And the government of Singapore actually guarantees the money 4% returns. So it's accumulating. Most people are quite healthy till they're about my age, right? So from, you know, getting out of high school or college, they'll work 20 years, just pile up savings. They're very healthy. And then what's really wonderful about this, and, you know, I, I had a father who was born in 1925. And so um, I've had to deal personally with the decline of a relative from robust health into, you know, eventually... Death and senescence, but um, that is hideously expensive. You know, most healthcare costs are in the last few years of life. And the only country in the world that has money saved up to pay for the graying of the population and people getting older is Singapore with these health savings accounts. Whereas, by contrast, um, Medicare currently has, I think, a $39 trillion hole in its trust fund over a 75 year planning horizon. And so We and Europe and Japan even, Korea, that we're gonna have to, unless we do some real reforms here, we're gonna have to unplug
0: granny in 20 years. More from my conversation with Sean in a moment, but first, with the future of the economy at stake, the Federal Reserve needs new thinking. It gets virtually no notice in the news, given hurricanes, horrific fires, the presidential election and the COVID crisis. But the Senate will soon decide whether Judy Shelton gets confirmed as a governor of the Federal Reserve. She was nominated for a vacant seat several months ago by President Trump. If confirmed, Dr. Sheldon would be one of seven governors and one of 12 members of the Critical Policymaking Open Market Committee. She would be one voice among many. She would hardly be running the place. Yet the Fed and its numerous supporters in the media, the academic world, and Congress are waging a bitter, smear-ridden campaign to derail our nomination. Why? She has the academic credentials. She's immensely knowledgeable about monetary policy. Her sin is not her qualifications. Rather, she does not blindly accept the way the Federal Reserve operates or the way it views the world. Clearly, the Fed can't tolerate real diversity in opinion and outlook. For example, the Federal Reserve accepts as holy writ what is called the Phillips Curve. The curve posits that if you want low unemployment, you must have high inflation. Conversely, low inflation means high unemployment. Of course, real world experience now and in the past has demonstrated the Phillips curve is nonsense. Even though seven Nobel Prize winning economists have debunked this theory, the Fed clings to the idea that prosperity causes inflation. Judy rightly thinks printing too much money is the real culprit. She is also skeptical of the notion that the Fed can precisely guide the performance of an economy as immense and complex as that of the U.S. Again, the Fed's record here justifies such caution. What also irks the Fed and most economists is that Judy Shelton has had nice words to say about the gold standard the US successfully had from the days of George Washington and Alexander Hamilton in the 1790s until the early 1970s, when, through a series of blunders, we went off of it. To be blunt, our gold standard critics here don't know what they're talking about and are victim of numerous myths. More to the point, only Congress, not the Federal Reserve, can enact a new gold standard and there's no prospect of that. The legendary economist Joseph Schumpeter observed that the key for change is asking the right questions. That's what the Federal Reserve really fears. Judy Shelton has the knowledge and strength of character to ask the right questions. That makes the Fed extremely uncomfortable. But such discomfort is needed. With the COVID-19 crisis, the Federal Reserve has become more powerful than ever, which makes Judy's presence more crucial than ever. And now, back to my conversation with Sean Flynn. Now, in uh, Singapore, these uh, savings, uh, I'm not sure which of the M's uh, they're parked in, or maybe they change over a lifetime, but they've saved up the equivalent, I think you've said, five years of healthcare costs. Now, healthcare is uh, $3.6 trillion in the U.S., so if we had five years' worth of healthcare care costs saved up, it would be $18 trillion, a number that is so astronomical it's not believable. But in Singapore, uh, five years have been uh, saved up over the years.
1: Yes, and the money is still accreting. It's still growing. But, yes, so we – and, you know, an interesting comparison in the book is that I, I – as you pointed out, Singapore, there's so much money in these health savings accounts, they could run – All healthcare spending in the country for over five years. That's all spending public-private, everything could be paid for for five full years with just the money in these health savings accounts. By contrast, there is so little money in health savings accounts in the United States that I ran the numbers um, and for the most recent year there was only enough money to pay for 13 days worth of healthcare services in the United States. So it's not even close. Um, and so that, that's another way of saying they're so much better protected. They're hundreds of times better protected financially than Americans are.
0: Now, can you change your plan? Is it easy to change plans? Yes, you can.
1: And so the, the way the government's been doing this is um, the government in Singapore sets what's covered and gives not exact, but pretty restrictive um, rules to these insurance companies or people are going to bid on them as to what the insurance will cover and how much premium should be in this and that. And then they put it up to uh, an auction process and uh, insurance companies actually bid on the right to be one of five companies that can actually offer these policies. And they have to compete with each other. They have to compete to even be in the game. And then- How how,
0: how often must they uh, compete to stay in the game?
1: I believe the auctions are held uh, for the companies to get the rights uh, every three years.
0: So uh, if you win once, you still got to perform or you're not going to get it again.
1: That's right. And, and people can also, in the meantime, do something that I think is crucial in free markets, which is vote with their feet, right? Take their money, go to a different insurance company and get a better deal. People in Singapore aren't locked in to their health insurance for an entire calendar year, right? Here in November, at most companies, you have a benefits fair and you sign up for health care that starts January 1 of the next year. And basically if you change jobs or anything or lose your job in that time, you're in big trouble because even if you have the money it's cumbersome even with you know the the things that Obamacare tried to do with these gold and silver and bronze plans to go out and buy yourself new health insurance coverage and so we have cobra laws and all these other things to try and put a bandage on that problem but as you point out there's no problem in Singapore where insurance is cheap affordable and there's options and you could change it anytime
0: in terms of uh the competition with the hospitals? How do they ensure that everyone gets the same treatment? And can hospitals open up? If you and I wanted to go over there and set up a hospital, how open is it? In this country, as you know, there are severe restrictions in most states on setting up a clinic or uh, something new? How do they do it in Singapore?
1: Well, so, the, you know, they, they don't have a federalist system because the country is small enough that it, you're just dealing with the central government there. And so the Ministry of Health takes applications from entrepreneurs who want to build hospitals. And the last time I was visiting, there was a guy who just left the Ministry of Health who was a cardiologist who was starting a big cardiopulmonary hospital. Um, and so, yeah, there are hospitals and clinics everywhere. The government's Basic attitude is they obviously want to make sure that no one's a charlatan and no one's going to get hurt or there's some low quality hospital. So there are licensing requirements, but basically anyone who can meet those licensing requirements, they're allowed to try their hand in the free market there.
0: So we have this free market system, but Singapore also has, uh, given their size, enormous subsidies that they provide, but the subsidies don't distort the market. You get free market competition on the pricing, even though. uh, a lot of people get subsidies. Describe the subsidy system and how Singapore in effect gets the best of both worlds, an effective safety net, but doesn't distort the marketplace.
1: The basic underlying concept, before I get to the details of what Singapore does, is that people in general are price sensitive and if they've got two equally good options, they will go for the one that costs them less. Now this is true whether someone's paying 100% of the cost or someone's paying 10% of the cost, right? Even if I'm only responsible for 10% of the cost of buying a car, I'm going to try and get the best car possible for whatever that $3,000 is or $10,000 is. In the same way, Singapore has incentivized everyone. You go into a free market with price tags and everyone, even if they're above their annual deductible on the healthcare, right? The $2,000, there's still a 10% copay. And so you are motivated, to keep your uh, costs down and to go the lowest cost providers. So the government has that in place, this intense competition where people are price sensitive, but the way they work it for the indigent is that everyone, based on their income and in Singapore's case, wealth, the government knows how much your house is worth and what's in your bank accounts, they will give subsidies. So everyone gets a bill, right, which makes them price sensitive. But for instance, I I had a really good last year uh, financially I would get zero subsidies from the government. So I'd get the 100% bill, right? There'd be, say I had a knee surgery and it was $2,000. Someone who was lower middle class might get a bill that was only for say $600. And someone who was completely indigent, they don't take it all the way down to zero because they always want people confronted with prices. But the government subsidizes their bill behind the scenes. But you still get the benefits of competition because even if my insurance bills and my healthcare is gonna be subsidized 90% by the government, The rest of it, the other 10% has to come out of my health savings account, out of my money. And so I'm still price sensitive, even though the government, if you're indigent, is picking up most of the tab. And that's very different here in America, where if you're on Medicaid, for instance, the government's picking up 100% of the tab and you have no incentive. For instance, Steve, if your kid has the sniffles to go to the urgent care for $100 versus the emergency room for $2,000, right? There's no incentive because the government's going to pick up 100% of those costs, no matter what you do. But in Singapore, just this little speed bump of presenting everyone with prices causes there to be real efficiency in the system. And that's one of the ways they keep the cost down. They exploit free markets and competition across the board and turn everyone into a price-sensitive consumer.
0: So you don't get what happens here with a lot of these programs, a lot of medical procedures, which really aren't necessary, especially in Medicaid and Medicare. You don't see uh, the providers pushing that because they want the volume because they don't feel they're getting enough reimbursement. So your it ends up hurting your health.
1: That's right. So the way the government in designed Medicare and Medicaid in 1965 was these billing codes. And so the only way a doctor can get paid is by submitting billing codes. And then private insurance have copied the system. So it's not just the government, it's throughout our system in the United States. And so the government to try and save money every year um reduces these reimbursement rates so over my mother's career as an eye surgeon for instance from say the uh, mid-1980s to the mid-2000s um the reimbursement rate for a cataract surgery fell from i think almost three thousand dollars down to a few hundred and so then if you're a doctor running a clinic you have to ask well my goodness the government's cutting my income ten percent a year how can i make up for this and the answer is you bill more billing codes. You figure out other things you can charge the government for. And everyone knows this is going on within the system and it's sort of an old boys club and a wink and a nod and everyone just kind of tolerates it and you know, shakes their head, but it's, it's really expensive. And another example of this sort of dumb things that happened in 1965 with Medicare and Medicaid was Congress at the time was trying to be cheap And they wanted to dump costs onto private insurers and so believe it or not even today medicare and medicaid cannot reimburse doctors or hospitals or providers for fixed overhead costs that is the cost of the building the cost of the equipment the electric bill every month they can't do overhead the hospitals legally are only allowed to bill for variable costs um, rubber gloves tylenol pills And so what they do is they pretend the Tylenol pill costs $25. That's why when you get a $25 Tylenol pill on your hospital bill, it's because they can't get paid for the cost of the bed and a bunch of the other stuff they did for you. And so they have to pretend. And so in any other business, Steve, as you know, this would be illegal because you'd be running two sets of books for the accountants and pretending costs weren't what they are. But in healthcare, it's completely tolerated because that's what Congress wanted, and everyone's just done their best to adapt around that.
0: Quickly explain what they do on drug pricing. Singapore accepts prescription drugs from uh, countries, not just the U.S. with the FDA, but also uh, Europe, Japan, Australia. And uh, those areas have a different way of approving drugs than we do, but Singapore accepts them all. So first, What does Singapore do and how do they also make sure those prices are posted so everyone can see what uh, you're being charged?
1: They want as many drugs competing with each other and on sale as possible, right? And so they've set their rules such that uh, two things happen. They will first take any drug that has been approved by any of, there's like five major worldwide drug approval agencies. Like we have the FDA here, there's the one in Canada, There's the Japanese one, there's the Australian one, and the European one. And so, any drug that's been approved by any of them can go on sale in Singapore and compete with every other drug. Then, in addition to that, they also went to a a set of rules about efficacy that we used to do back until 1962, I believe. the
0: thalidomide scandal. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, so from the time the FDA was created by Teddy Roosevelt um, until the 1960s, so almost 50, 60 years it was the case that a drug only had to be proved not dangerous. It didn't have to be proved for efficacy, right? And efficacy is hideously costly. When you hear it costs $2 billion to bring a new drug to market, that's mostly the stage two and stage three clinical trials where they've randomized hundreds or thousands of people and they're trying to see how well the drug works. Singapore says, no, no, no. Stage one trials are enough. Let's just prove safety, right? We're going to prove safety. Because for most drugs, like take Lipitor or something, you've got high cholesterol, there's already like 10 drugs available currently. Some of them are already genetic, uh, excuse me, generic, not genetic. And then the Singapore's government would say, okay, the Europeans say there's this drug over here that's safe, they're not sure if it's actually effective. We're gonna allow that drunk company to come over here and attempt to make sales. Why? Because doctors aren't stupid. They're gonna look at the new drug, they're gonna look at the old drug, and If there's a patient who's responding very well to the old generic drugs, why try the new one? But on the other hand, if you've got a patient who hasn't responded very well to the other ones, you may give this new drug a try. And then simply by word of mouth around the doctors, the drugs that actually do work, right? Because the doctors can see with their own patients whether there's efficacy or not they end up getting more and more popular. And so an, another way to think about this, Steve, is that Singapore has crowdsourced the stage two and stage three clinical trials. So they make sure everything's safe, and then it's up to you as an early adopter about whether you want to try it, and then you give everyone feedback.
0: So uh, coming here to uh, the U.S., uh, you've recommended, one, health savings accounts, and uh, two, having all the prices posted. The the Trump administration... Uh, put in an executive order trying to get transparency on pricing arrangements that hospitals and insurers have is that going to work or where how do we stand on that because the hospitals are fiercely resisting this
1: oh yeah yeah they that when one of these reforms was put in place i think november of last year maybe november 3rd or 4th, um, within 2 hours they'd sued in federal court and got an injunction, the American Hospital Association. I have no doubts that it'll work if it's allowed to be implemented, and it's been sort of coming in stages. The, um, this actually began late in the Obama administration, his second term, where hospitals for the first time were required on site at their physical facilities to have a computer printout of all their prices. Um, there's several problems with this, Steve. One, most people don't even know the computer printouts available, and then on in addition to that, even if you get a hold of it, these are not the actual prices the hospital gets paid or charge anyone. These are the beginning of the negotiation prices where they send outrageous claims to the insurance company and then the insurance company denies. See, they're called the charge master prices. They're like the uh, rack rate prices on a hotel room when you see the little sign on the door. And it's, yeah, $10,000 know.
0: a room and you're paying $50 a night, yes. And
1: so so there actually is no price transparency. So the what the Trump administration got sued for by the American Hospital Association was that um, he wanted to put all those prices online. And then there was a plan in 2021 to um, force them to actually post what are called the fully adjudicated prices. That is, after that barter negotiation takes place, how much does the hospital actually get charged? And, um, you know, these things are so simple that you think they'd be obvious. Why not give people the right to know what things actually cost? But the entrenched bureaucracy and stuff and the entrenched special interests are fighting it tooth and nail and not allowing people the most simple and in some sense most important information because we have pretty good healthcare across the board here our doctors are board certified right hospitals are regulated for quality so the only thing lacking really is the prices and people's ability to shop around for a good deal because the quality is pretty uniformly good everywhere
0: now there are uh, some uh, exceptions uh, to uh, the kind of system we have you mentioned lasik surgery for the eyes cosmetic surgery Uh, walk us through what uh, the state of indiana did first under governor mitch daniels who's now the president of purdue for state employees, and what then-Governor Mike Pence did for uh, their Medicaid program.
1: Okay, so for the state employees, um, and then the Medicaid later was very similar, and the woman who designed both is now the HHS Secretary of Health and Human Services and is actually trying to push all these free
0: market reforms. She's in charge of a— uh, what they call the uh, uh, centers for Medicare and Medicaid, CEMA Verma, right. I believe.
1: Yes, which is which is the people who count the numbers and yeah, SEMA verma, that's right. And so what they did was basically come up with this idea, and Whole Foods had actually tried it earlier, so there was some proof it already worked, um, of fully funded health savings accounts. So if you're an employee in the state of Indiana, a state government employee, right? Because this insurance right. thing we're talking about right. for the state government employees. There's a benefit fair in November and you're given a bunch of options, PPOs, HMOs, but one of them is this thing that looks like Singapore system. And so it is a, the the state, if you opt for it, will pay the premium on the insurance. And then there's an annual deductible of, I think, 2850. So $2,850. You as the government employee who signed up for this are responsible for that first 2850 of savings every year. And then basically everything above that's on the insurance company. Now, what this is good for is giving people incentive to save, but what is potentially bad here is that most people on their own have very poor savings habits and would not save up enough money to cover the deductible if they had a bad year and something, you know, they got into a car accident or something to cover that $28.50. So what Mitch Daniels did very wisely um, was to say, all right, if you sign up for this plan and you opt for it, we're going to gift you the 2850 and every year you stay in the plan, you get another 2850, another 2850 and any money you don't spend in any given year rolls over the next year and is yours to keep. And now Steve, most people don't have catastrophic years very often. And so in most years, employees are piling up money, saving nearly all the 2850 they get. The next thing you know, five, six, 10 years later, they've got fifteen, twenty-five, thirty thousand dollars That's real peace of mind for families. But at the same time, since people know that it's their money, they've got an incentive, for instance, to go get the generic drug instead of the chemically equivalent but much more expensive um, brand name drug. They've got an incentive to go to the urgent care for $100 instead of the emergency room for 800 And the system actually, and this is you know, talk about supply-side economics. It it it's a cost offset. It more than offsets itself. Then that's because on the back end, once people are in this plan, you can compare their behavior to people in HMOs and PPOs. Their spending falls thirty-five percent. That more than makes up for the twenty-eight fifty gifts that they get every
0: and year. And the right? outcomes are as good or better.
1: Yes, and the the net savings. I think Indiana. This is published. Um, Mercer Consulting did the numbers. Eleven percent net savings.
0: So what, what did Indiana do then on the Medicaid side?
1: Okay, so guys, Seema Verma was still around. Uh, uh, Pence is now governor. And so they decided they were gonna, and they actually did this, they went out to the Department of Health and Human Services at the federal level and got what's called a waiver because they wanted to do right. a weird, innovative version of Medicaid. And since Medicaid is paid half by the federal government, you need to get their permission. So they got the permission, they got the waiver, And then they created a system that looks very much like what was done for the Indiana government employees. It looks like the Singapore system. It looks like what Whole Foods does. And so there's an $1,100 a year annual deductible. So people on Medicaid in that state, they can either go into regular Medicaid where it's first dollar coverage and the government pays 100%, or they go in this system where there's an $1,100 annual deductible. And the people here are just, um, these are working poor, like the, 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 that was basically who this was targeted at. And so they don't have $1,100 lying around, right? You know, you want all the cost savings that comes from people saying, oh, I don't want to waste my own money. But on the other hand, these people are so desperately poor in so many cases, like single moms with like four kids, but they're working. They're trying to you know, help their families. They're doing everything we want them to. The kids are in school, but they can't afford health insurance without this program. And on this program, though, they are gifted the $1,100 uh, into their health savings accounts every single year. And every year they're still in the program, they get another $1,100. Any money they don't spend is theirs to keep. And it's portable. Steve, you 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 hinted at this earlier, that a great feature of these things is they're portable. So suppose they get, um, I don't know, training as a welder or a truck driver, and they're making good money. They would no longer qualify for Medicaid. Um, they would probably be on some private health insurance from you know their new employer, but all the money they accumulated by shopping around for the best deal, that would stay on their health savings accounts forever, and they could use it forever. And so Indiana um, saw, again, about a 35% reduction in spending. You can compare the people on this deductible version where they gift them the annual $1,100 with people on regular Medicaid. And they spend about thirty-five percent less, which more than pays for the eleven hundred dollar gifts.
0: So, on uh, health savings accounts, uh, obviously there are reforms that need to be made there, removing restrictions on uh, what you can put in, removing restrictions on uh, what you can buy, like over-the-counter uh, medications and the like. We've had these crazy restrictions, but uh, your plan, the idea would be with health savings accounts, even if you gifted, as you say, the uh, uh, the deductible, and uh, you'd still end up saving having the price tags. Uh, there are a handful of uh, hospitals that uh, actually do some innovative things. Quickly before we go, describe the Surgery Center of Oklahoma and what they've done there, and why they charge are able to charge for first rate surgeries, board certified surgeons, Singapore like prices.
1: Well, so Keith Smith is a hero of mine, Dr. Keith Smith, who started the Surgery Center of Oklahoma. If you go on their website, they've been giving out prices since 1998, so they're not new to this. Um, All the prices are listed on the website, and they are so cheap that many people find that even including airfare and a hotel to, say, get an e-surgery done, it would cost them less out of pocket than it would cost going through their own insurance and a local doctor wherever they're from and getting billed some outrageous amount. And so, yeah, Keith Smith. They offer I, the last time I counted, um, 289 different surgeries. Basically, anything you can think of except for brain surgery. Um, and maybe they can hire Ben Carson when he's retired in a couple years. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it's 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 shocking. They are um, and I you know you can compare their prices with the Mayo Clinic and the prices in uh, the Surgery Center of Oklahoma are something like 70 percent less. Than the prices posted at the mail clinic on their website for similar procedures. And Which so-
0: raises an interesting question. In any other market, if somebody comes up with a similar product or a better product that is substantially cheaper, competition will force everyone else to get their act together and offer the same thing. But as you mentioned, the Surgery Center of Oklahoma has been around for over 20 years. And because of this third party system, there is no incentive for uh, imitators, in effect, for competitors. It's the same old, same old.
1: Yeah, and, it, and also there's active um, steps taken by insurance companies to try and crush these free market centers. Um, for instance, they even if someone wanted to, they can't use their insurance there. Um, they lock them out of the provider networks. And since most people are used to paying with insurance, that means they never even consider options like the Surgery Center of Oklahoma. And so it, it's, it's not just lack of incentives, it's active evil conniving. Um, to try and shut these guys down and deny them patience.
0: So what are the closing? What are the prospects? Do you see You know, the administration is trying to uh, make uh, some more transparency in pricing? What are the prospects of getting that kind of fundamental reform where we can start to see what Indiana's achieved with uh, part of their population more for less? Well,
1: and I don't want to sound like a partisan Republican here, but if Donald Trump loses in November and the Democrats end up in charge of both the House and the Senate, I expect their number one priority in those two years will be Canada style socialist medicine Uh, or maybe UK style where there's also some private hospitals, but it's mostly a national health service. And so that to me is a grim prospect. Um, It's easy for the Democrats to sell, though, because it's always easy to say free, free, free. But there is not enough cost savings in those systems. And so um, I'm afraid the only way this is going to happen, if the good outcome happens, is that you need Trump to get reelected. And then you need Seema Verma to work lots of magic in his second term. And then hope Pence follows Trump because, of course, Pence was involved in that Healthy Indiana program. So if you could get another eight years of Republican control here, I think enough time has gone by. It was 2010 when the Affordable Care Act was passed that people would say, yeah, that isn't working.
0: We need something new. Well, The challenge challenge with the Affordable Care Act was it built on the existing system, was built as revolutionary, but it built on the flawed system that we've had since the 1940s. And uh, what you're saying is, forget about changing the ACA, put in these other reforms, and the system will organically change itself.
1: Yes, and let me just throw one more in that Trump also got sued for and lost in federal court. They said they didn't have the legislative authority, although the federal judge agreed it was a good policy. He wanted to require, starting last year, that every drug ad on television include the price, right? What a simple thing to let people know how much the Lipitor is going to cost or something. But he was sued for this, and apparently the way Congress wrote the original legislation, he can't do it. But that's what we're up against, right? Even the most simple reforms right now are impossible to get through. And so, um, while I'm hopeful for the future, I'm also fearful that uh, we may have socialized medicine here, which would just be just a disaster for the country.
0: So I guess we should uh, find out how we can get airline tickets to uh, Singapore when we need procedures. Sean, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Okay, thank you, thank you, Mr. Forbes, a true honor. Please call me
0: Steve, don't make me feel so old.
1: Okay, Steve, (laughs) thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it.